Today I'm talking with Anne Mitchell from ISIPP and we're going to talk a little bit about the state of email today and some of the things that Anne's seen going on down because she's right there in the, in the trenches of getting email through and has had quite a history of working with email. Anne, welcome to the call. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and then we'll go ahead and get started and that'd be great. Well, Adrian, thank you so very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to work with you, and I'm glad to be back. And a little bit about myself. Well, I currently run ISIP, which stands for the Institute for Social and Internet Public Policy, and we have an email accreditation program called Surety Mail, which we use to help ensure that legitimate email senders are able to get their mail through to the inbox. And that was born of my original roots in the email industry, which is actually on the anti-spam side. I was originally in-house counsel and the director of legal and public affairs for the very first blacklist known as the MAPS RBL. And so my background is very much helping to make sure ISPs don't have to deal with email that people have, have not requested, also known as spam. But in the course of my work, I have also become very involved in helping to make sure that legitimate senders are able to get their mail through to those ISPs. And that was because at a certain point in time, a quite pivotal point in time, I became almost painfully aware that despite the fact that the ISPs and the email senders, the email marketers, et cetera, seem to be at odds even now, Uh, Back then, years ago, certainly it was much more so. Despite all that, I became aware that really they wanted the same exact thing, and they were actually on the same side. And that thing that they both wanted was to not send or deliver email to people who don't want it, but to make sure that the people who do want a particular piece of email get it, that it gets through. So that, in a nutshell, is my background. That's what I do now. Okay. Um I've got a lot of technical questions to ask you, but um, why don't you, do you want to um, just tell us a little bit about where the industry's at? I mean, um, there's just uh, the company that you were um, CEO of for a while, Habeas, was just um, bought by ReturnPath. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what that means? Well, sure, sure. So I was one of the original founders of Habeas, and Habeas was originally founded as a company that was intended to help distinguish spammers from legitimate email senders and, in fact, to then sue the spammers using copyright and trademark law. And during my tenure there as CEO, Habeas sort of evolved into primarily a company that would allow legitimate email senders to distinguish their mail from spam, which then in turn would allow the ISPs to quickly identify the legitimate mail, send it on, and then they could turn their attention and resources to the the bulk of the balance of mail, which was, of course, spam. I left Habeas about a year after it was founded, and that was in, I believe, 2004 that I left, and have not had any relationship with it between now and then, other than to occasionally have people come to me to tell me stories about how it was doing or to have people I'd hired in come to me to you know, talk to me. At the time, at present day, up until really the announcement yesterday, there were three primary, what I would call, full-service email accreditation companies. And by email accreditation, what I mean is what we do at Short Email, which is working with an email sender and then vouching for them to the ISPs and spam filters, look, these are good guys, they're doing the right thing, they're not sending spam, they're sending mail that's been requested, and you should 
deliver their email to the inbox. And, and the ISPs appreciate that because that means that they don't have to churn resources checking this mail. In other words, they don't have to run it through their whole gamut of spam filters just to determine at the end, oh, well, this wasn't spam to start with. This way they can just put it right in the inbox and, and again, devote those resources to dealing with the real spam. So at the time, up until yesterday, there were the three of us. There was Habeas, again, which I had founded and then left a year later. There was our surety mail service and then Return Path, which has their sender score service. And by full service, I mean we work with all of the different ISPs. We offer sort of a... Um, a hosted, a suite, if you will, of different services all related to email deliverability. We offer delivery inbox monitoring so you can see if your email is getting delivered into the major ISPs or not. We offer email client rendering, which means that, you know, you can take your email, your creative that you're about to send out and see how it will be rendered by up to 20 different email clients so you know how it will look when someone at AOL reads it and how it will look when someone at Hotmail reads it and what it will look like in Outlook um, and even on a couple of different mobile devices. So we offer that. Um, and, and all of the three services were offering much these same sorts of services. And then just sort of on a side note, there's a company called Goodmail, which is slightly different. And what they do is they they work with some of the ISPs. They basically put a little widget in your email that displays at the end that sort of says this email has been certified by Goodmail. But they only work with the ISPs that actually are set up to, to have the infrastructure to accommodate that widget. And you can only send mail if you're certified with Goodmail by either using one of their MTAs or, or a vendor. So they're not really full service in that same way, and they don't offer those other services. But I mention them because... Often their name comes up as well, and I didn't want to think I was snubbing them. So there were three. There was Habeas, ourselves, and Return Path. And so what this means, to get back to your question, is now there are two. There, uh, because Habeas is actually sort of being incorporated into Return Path. And I read... Were you, were um, you so called a still in Habeas? Yes, yes, I was. And that's a very interesting question that everyone seems to want to know the answer to. Yes, I, of course, had vested a year's worth of stock. Um, however... It's no secret at this point because there have been articles written in the past 24 hours that, that bring this to light that habeas was sold for a, a pittance. I, I am not at liberty to say whether that pittance covered the debt which they were servicing, uh, but I can say because it has already been out there publicly that uh, no one with any stock got anything. So you're, I thought you were going to be uh, retiring to the Caribbean on your own island that you bought. <laughs> well, I may still do that, but I'm very happy to say that our surety mail accreditation service, and generally ISIP, is doing extraordinarily well. So if I do, in fact, retire to the Caribbean, it, it, it will be from the fruits of my own labor here, um, and, of course, the company, not just me. You know, we have a wonderful staff, but it will be a function of the current company, not my stock at Habeas. Let me say this, because this is very critical, not that I think necessarily – it's important for your particular listeners to, you know, they may or may not care how I feel about the ultimate disposition of habeas, but it's important for me to say this. And I've said it in interviews, and I'd like to say it here because we're on the subject. People have wondered how I feel about what was originally my baby, habeas, being acquired by what, in essence, is a competitor. And I'm, I'm really very pleased. For one thing, Habeas also had become a competitor, and in fact, I think they saw us quite seriously as a competitor. 
um, and felt that that perhaps we were a challenge to their their model. Um, on the other hand, they also had copied some things we had done once we came out with some innovative features, and, and I had anticipated that, and so I took that as, as a compliment. So we were a competitor, but also an acknowledged, you know, innovator there. But in any event, I feel very good about Habeas uh, being acquired by Return Path, primarily because when I founded or co-founded Habeas, it had a great deal of potential. And during the time I was there, it had evolved in a direction that really held promise for both sides of the equation, both the email receivers, the ISPs and spam filters, and the email senders for getting legitimate mail delivered. And as, I, as I've been quoted as saying in an interview, the habeas that Return Path acquired was not the habeas that I founded. It must have changed a lot over the years. Look, actually, this ties into where I want to ask you some questions because um, there's innovation but, coming up in the email space. There's, um, I haven't been tracking it that closely in the last year or so, but I know there's things like SPF and domain keys. Those kinds of protocols are taking hold where the email can be authenticated based on domains and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and given that Habeas is, as one of the, the major players in the authentication space has been acquired for um, um, not, not an entirely large sum of money, does that, in, does that put some sort of level of indication as to the importance of the space? I mean, how, how, important, today, how important today really is accreditation, um, given that we have all of these other sorts of um, protocols coming along for authentication? It's extremely important, and, and let me just finish, please, what I was saying, because it was critical, and then I will I'll address that. And that was, I just wanted to say that I'm very pleased that Return Path acquired Habeas because I know the people at Return Path, and they are stand-up people, and I know they'll do the right thing. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with Habeas now being in their hands. I just wanted to get that out there because that's really what people wanted to know when they were asking me this question. Now, about authentication and accreditation. You know, I don't know if you've been privy to any of the discussions, any of the mailing lists or what have you involved in the development of the authentication standards or indeed any standards. If you've ever sat in on any of the IETF working groups, then you know that every great idea has its year. And I don't mean it lasts year. I mean, it takes it that long to get to a point where people can agree about anything about it. And, so there are some promising authentication mechanisms out there, but there is by no means widespread, let alone universal adoption, for any of them. Now, SPF has been around for how many years now? And we have people come to us every single day applying to be accredited who not only don't have SPF set up, <clears throat> and they know they probably should, but they have no idea how to do it. And, and in fact, just this week we launched a service where we will set up your SPS and domain keys for you because so many people have no idea how to do it. So the adoption by the actual people who need to use it, the, the, the end using email senders, there's just not the uptake to even get close to universal for any of these mechanisms. So they are very important and any upcoming system will also be very important. And and when I say very important, I mean there are huge ISPs that if you are not publishing SPF or domain keys, you're probably not going to get your email delivered into those ISPs or at best you're going to get into their junk folder. So it's extremely important. 
But despite that, the message and the adoption just haven't followed. So the technology, these innovations are important, but they do not, and I would say even unfortunately obviate the need for accreditation. And when I but say... If aren't adopting free things like SPF and domain keys, um, why would they be more likely to adopt um, authentication and like paid services like yours? Because we take care of everything for them. For the most part, the, the, the typical email sender, and I would say the majority of email senders, with you know, the sort of rare exception of some of the very large ESPs who have their own in-house people, but the, the typical email sender really doesn't know how to go about fixing the problems they have with deliverability. You know, they don't know how to set up their SPF. They don't know any of those things even the most basic of things, and they especially don't know how to and probably are not in a position to develop the relationships that they need to with their counterparts at all of the ISPs, whereas the email accreditation programs, ourselves and Return Path both, already have this relationship with each of the ISPs. So, for example, Adrian, you know, if you suddenly woke up tomorrow and found that all of your email had been blocked at AOL or Yahoo, or even just that it had started going into the junk folder, would you know what to do? What would be the first thing you'd do when you realize that? Call Ann Mitchell. No, I'd send her an email. Um, uh-huh. I, I personally realized uh, a while ago that I, uh, email is too hard, even for, and I think I have a moderate understanding of it, and so I do my ma- email on Google applications now, and um, I use mailing list service then to deliver my list email. So in those situations, I have people to to raise it with on either side, and then they, the people that are more educated on this than me can get in and solve the details. Well, you see, and that's exactly that's you really just answered your question. That's 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 the answer to your question: is that that people want someone who's already got the contacts and already knows how to do this to do it for them. And in reality, for most situations and most senders of any size, it's more cost effective to do so. Certainly, you know, we are extremely affordable. And if you think about what your time is worth, and if you think about the learning curve, and once you've learned how to do all those things, and once you've made all the connections with the ISPs and spam filters, if in fact you can, then there's still time, once you've learned all that, that it takes to apply it every week, every month, every day, what have you. So from pure cost analysis, it is much more cost effective to pay someone to do these things for you and to make sure that your mail gets delivered. And, of course, let's make no mistake, for many, many companies now, email is their financial lifeblood. If their mail's not getting through, they're not, they're not earning money. Right. So if I, uh, if I come to, to, to you, so let's say I'm, uh, like some, some people might want to use a service like Exact Target, which has fairly high rates on a, on a per CPM basis to deliver email. Mm-hmm. I, can then, I could then have all my mail housed internally on my own mailing list software and, and handle the deliverability myself with you guys as the, the backstop to get the mail through. And so then if I, as I said, wake up one morning and my mail's not getting into Yahoo, I can call, I can call or I can email you guys and you guys will look into it. Is that basically how it works? Well, now, if you're using Exact Target, then your mail is going out through their IP addresses. Now, I'm happy to say that Exact Target actually is accredited with us, so you should have no trouble if you're using Exact Target. But... But generally speaking, of course, all primarily 
it's changing a little bit now, but for you know, overwhelmingly still, email reputation is based on the reputation of your IP address, the IP address from which your email flows. So if you're using an email service provider, such as Exact Target is, and, and of course there are many other uh, fine email service providers as well, then your email deliverability is keyed directly to the reputation of the IP address at that email service provider through which your mail goes. Now, many email service providers, uh, particularly many that work with us because we, we really urge them to do this, will give you your own IP address so that only your mail is going out through that address. But with many other uh, email service providers, your mail is going out through the same IP address as a 100 other companies. And if any one of those companies sends out a spam run, suddenly your mail is going to get blocked too because it's going through the same source. Right. But they're monitoring that. But so let's say if I'm using ExactTarget and ExactTarget's managing all the mail for me and, and handling the deliverability, and then I go to using my own internal mail service, is that what I can, I can have you then certify and manage my IP addresses and so that if problems come up with my IP addresses, you, you then go and sort that out with the ISPs? Is that how that works? Essentially, yes. Essentially, yes. So for, um, and just to, to clarify what you're saying is you're, say you're using an email service provider such as ExactTarget, and then for some reason you choose to stop using them and to send your mail out through your own mail server. Yes, that's exactly one of the times when you would come to us. Ideally, you would come to us as you were making that decision so that we could counsel you on how to start out right from the beginning doing everything right because it's so much easier to start with no reputation and then build it up than it is to start having to first rehabilitate your reputation because you've unwittingly done something wrong. And, and I have to tell you, and I don't know if you read my, um, we have a, an email deliverability blog at gettingemaildelivered.com where that's what, you know, that's what we talk about every day is the things to do right, the things to do, you know, that can be done wrong that can affect and impact your, your email deliverability. And quite relatedly, this, today's post is actually about how just the content you choose can either cause your email to be delivered as it should or to go right into the junk folder. So ideally you come with a it makes an enormous difference. At what percentage of the overall importance would you place on the, the content versus IP addresses and everything else? Well, you're going to be glad to hear that I'm not an accountant when I tell you that I would say it's about 90% for the IP address and about 90% for content. Which, of course, you said, how could that possibly be? And that's why I'm not an accountant. But let me explain. It's not an aggregate primarily in terms of, you know, you look at the IP address, is it good? You look at the content, is it good? It's rather a series of steps. The IP address reputation is what will get you past the initial check. In other words, if your IP address is on a blacklist, your mail will never even make it in the door at the ISP. But once your mail does make it in the door, then you have to run all the spam filters, which look at the content and the other things. So both are necessary, but neither alone sufficient in terms of getting your mail delivered. That's, I, that's interesting. I thought that content had become much less important, and I thought we were doing a better job on filtering based on IP addresses and stuff like domain keys now, and so that, that's, that's what they mainly looked at. I guess I was, I was pretty wrong. Well, here, here's, you know, I, I think you're probably not wrong, because I think you're probably talking about something slightly different than I'm talking about, um, or maybe we're talking about a sort of a biphasal sort of thing. It is true that the decision about whether to accept email at all into 
or receiving system is still based in large part on IP address and authentication. But again, once it's accepted in rather than blocked or bounced, the decision as to whether it's going to get delivered to the inbox or the junk folder is extremely key to content. So you might have been talking about blocked or bounced versus junk foldered. I'm talking now about junk foldered versus in the inbox. Right. I get it. Okay. Um, let's see some questions. Um, actually, to that point then, um, I'm interested in, in how Google Acts generally does a pretty good job with its spam filtering. I get um, about 2,000 spams every day now, and, you know, it's, it keeps increasing. If you could buy stocks in spam, I'd, I'd certainly buy them because it, it just seems to go up and up. Um, mm-hmm. But they do a really good job on filtering, and my guess is they're doing some kind of collaborative, collaborative filtering to keep mail out of the, the inbox. Um, do you know anything about how Google Apps filters? I, I, I know pretty much what everyone else knows, which is a great deal of speculation, very little confirmation, but it's educated speculation. Um, and and I, I would agree. You know, of course, they have Gmail from which to draw, and every time you click that something is spam, if, you know, 100,000 other people click the same thing as spam, it would only make sense that they would use that data to educate and inform their own spam filtering decisions. Now, again, no one has actually ever confirmed that, but it, it only makes sense. Interestingly, however, um, I will say that their false positive rate is not stellar. It's not awful. There are places that are worse. Uh, but, you know, of course, and I think we've talked about this in the past, that, you know, the better and more effective your spam filter is, the more likely it is to also being as spam, you know, to identify a spam mail that really isn't spam that you really want. And that can have some really dire consequences, particularly for transactional email. Not so much for bulk email. You know, the reality is that if you don't get a particular issue of a newsletter that, you know, 500,000 other people are also getting, it's unlikely that you're going to be terribly impacted by that in any negative way. But if, on the other hand, you don't get a notice of an appointment or a confirmation of travel arrangements or, again, something that's a transactional email, uh, it can be absolutely devastating. And, And we've heard stories of, you know, lawyers who have missed court dates to the um, detriment of their clients because their spam filter ate the hearing notice that had come from the court. That's interesting. Um, I, I, I mean, the way I get, do that, handle that with Google is I do a keyword search for my first name and last name and then some other related keywords to things that I'm doing. And I search that on my spam um, folder once every couple of days. And then pull out, mm-hmm. comes out, and then the rest gets deleted. I don't find too much that way. I, I know I do miss some messages, but um, in general, I haven't I haven't missed any court dates <laughs> that you know of. Um, well, and, and see, that really raises a good point, which is also a point that that's raised every time we talk about the court date story, which is it's almost well, I would say, speaking as a lawyer now. And now that people are on notice, in, in the legal context, I would say it, it almost rises to malpractice to not check your spam folder if you know that, that your local court sends notices by email. And and that the, you know, sort of the meta point there is that no matter how good a spam filter is, you're still going to have to look through your spam because well, otherwise you're going to email that I mean, I'm getting... I can't. I'm getting 2,000 a day, so it's not. That's not. I'm not willing to do that. Um, well, you are so looking. By looking through it, I mean checking it. You're still doing a form of checking it. You're doing a, a sort of 
a more high-level form by doing your let me, search. Let me raise and that that's... suggestion to you. I, I sent that, that suggestion into Google, which um, they, they received but didn't act on, um, and that is that all of the, I believe now all of the services should enable you to do to specify some keywords that you're looking for in, that goes in a junk mail and then automatically um, give those as, a, as whitelisted into the inbox. And that way, if users can specify the keywords that they're looking for, that's going to reduce the, the spam mail, and it's also something that spammers aren't going to be able to figure out. And if they do, then you can change those keywords. And given that you know some of the right people, maybe you can start mentioning that sort of thing so that they do that. And that, that's a very interesting idea. And, and it's not, you know, I mean, in, in native spam filtering, um, it, you know, some of the email clients, you can already do that. Uh, but you're absolutely right that for the ones that are web-based or, or you know, off off-site, um, that, that's a very interesting idea. And, and you're also right that the scammers will start gaming it, but... Yeah, it'll get gamed. But it's hard, hard to game when you can set the keyword yourself. But, um, right. Yeah, anyway. Um, now, I have a, actually, I have a question for you. Tell me. Um, you mentioned that you uh, mine your spam folder by searching for your name. And often spammers will have your name because they've purchased a list. And, and so I'm just wondering if you have found, you know, do you find that that search turns up many things that are actually still spam and do you sort of just sort of look at them and discuss and say, wow, I can't believe you used my name, you bad person? No, uh, they don't tend to have both my first name and my last name in the spam. Um, and then the, the, the number that, that comes up, it might, out of the 2,000 I got that day, there might only be 10. And so then mm-hmm. that's, a, that's, a quick, that's a quick read. Okay. Um, so I guess I guess those have to be scanned manually. Um, yeah, good point. Because <laughs> um, I wouldn't want all of those to get into the inbox. Um, but it's, the volume's a lot lower. Right, right. Because it's only a certain you know section of spam that also uses your your real name. Right. Exactly. Yeah, good point. So I guess there may be a, a, a third level. I, I just, I mean, my spam volume is getting very high, and I, I just, I can't process all that manually. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about is uh, the, the different mail services. So, like Hotmail, uh, Google Apps, um, Yahoo, who, who, and then AOL. I guess we're covering the, the big four. Who would you say is doing the best job at um, processing and filtering spam? Processing and filtering spam, keeping it out of the inbox of their users, or processing and filtering it, keeping it from being sent out to others? Um, for, for on the user side, so doing the best job at, at, at blocking spam and then also on not having false positives. I have to say that Google does a pretty good job. Now, you're talking Google Apps, and I'm talking Gmail. I have not personally worked with Google Apps, but of course they are built in, in to some extent on the same platform, um, as far as I know at least. So I, I can say that Gmail does a pretty darn good job of keeping the spam in the spam folder. Their false positives are not awful. They're not great, but they're not awful. Okay. AOL, we hear very few complaints about. So, so your number one would be Gmail, and then number two would be AOL. I think so. I think so. But you know, it always changes, and and part of what informs that is, you know, every user has a unique experience because they're receiving a unique mail stream. Right. 
Right. So if you're get, you know, if you have an AOL account and you're signed up to a lot of newsletters that have to deal with, oh, I don't know, herbal products, you know, you're going to tell me that the false positive rate is absolutely appalling because they're all going to go in your junk folder. Uh, on the other hand, if you're maybe sort of an older retiree and really all you're using your email account for is communicating with the kids and you do very little commercial transactions online, so you're not really expecting to receive anything that's bulk or transactional, you're going to tell me that, boy, AOL is wonderful because they never get it wrong. So it, even there, it's really pretty hard to quantify and, and everything is anecdotal. Yeah, right. Yeah, mine, I mean, I was testing, actively testing different mail services a few years ago, and I used a lot of tagged email addresses, and um, so I could tag them and send them into the trash. Um, since I've moved to, to Gmail or, or Google Apps, they, they now, all those uh, filterings are now gone, but Google Apps is actually just classifying them all themselves, and they're doing a really good job. I was a little bit stunned. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to get uh, overwhelmed with spam, but they're actually getting it most of the time right, like 99.5% mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I'm not surprised um, to hear that. Now, you mentioned you, you, you uh, mentioned briefly, and um, we should talk about that. You've, you're, you're a lawyer, and you've been involved with the, the legal side of CanSpam, and you, in fact, helped uh, author some of the CanSpam law. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, I know that there's some some changes happening in the law with regards to email, um, and I know that that could be a long topic in itself. Um, maybe if you could just tell us a little bit uh, of what's happening there. My impression is that it basically is changing almost nothing. Is that correct or am I misguided? No, I'm not sure I understand the question. So are you saying that um, despite having the laws and new laws or, or uh, revisions of the law that, that the, the spam landscape is still the same? Um, no, the, the legal the, the legal perspective, like can spam, the, the the update that's that's coming through to can spam is um, it's, it's either happened or it's about to happen. Um, yes, have, yes, doesn't months. change much. No, actually, it changes quite a bit. Um, it, it 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 has, um, and actually, I'm going to make sure that I don't misspeak. So just hang on just a minute here, because what I want to do is um, pull it up so I have it right in front of me, so I don't misspeak or forget. But there are sort of four primary new changes, if you will, to the law. And uh, by far the most dramatic, I'll actually, let me start with the simplest. First of all, it clarified, and so in, in this way you're right, that, that in this particular aspect it doesn't really change much. You know, one of the things about camp spam was that it requires that you put a physical mailing address in each and every um, bulk or commercial bulk email that you send. And when that first was enacted, we had people coming to us sort of all up in arms and very concerned because what they wanted to know was, does this mean we actually have to put our physical address where we sit in our office or is it okay to use uh, a post office box if it's a legitimate post office box at which we really get mail? And our advice to them at that time was, and, and that came from my legal background and knowing how the legal system works generally and knowing also what uh, a monumental task the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has in going after spammers, our advice was, look, if you're doing everything else right and you choose to use a post office box as your mailing address in your CAN-SPAM compliant mailings, the FTC is not going to come after you for that. They have much more important things to do than to go after someone who's really trying to comply and do everything right just because they put in a P.O. box 
you know, they have much more important fish to fry and, Do you and think not the resources. That we're, we're now supposed to put in our physical address where we're sitting at the time we send the email. Well, excuse me? In theory, we're supposed to put the physical address we're sitting when we send an email. Well, in theory, at the time, that was certainly how it could be read. It, but, but it was gray. And so one of these clarifications that came down this past month was that, yes, in fact, you may use a post office box. So what we had told people, it basically just confirmed. So it's no longer theory, and it's confirmed you can use a P.O. box as long as it really is your P.O. box over which you exercise control and you really go there and check the mail. Now, the next thing that came up that was clarified or amended this past month was that, you know, as everyone already should know, you're required under CAN-SPAM to remove an email address from your mailing list within 10 days of receiving that request, the request to opt out. And many people will argue, uh, I think, perhaps rightly, you know, 10 days is an awfully long time. And we tell people, you should remove it immediately. You know, the moment someone tells you that they don't want your mail, you should stop sending it to them because you're only courting trouble otherwise. The 10-days rule is perfectly reasonable for the 1960s where you've got big uh, mainframes running COBOL. I think that, that, that's perfectly <laughs> fair. Someone's got to carry the tape from somewhere to somewhere else. Uh, I, can't, <laughs> I can't see how anything under the instantaneous is acceptable today. I absolutely agree. Now, I know that part of the reason the 10 days initially came into play was because there were senders who often queue things up you know, days in advance, and so it's already in the pipeline, and their concern was that they would, you know, people would then get something after opting out, and suddenly they'd be in trouble under canned spam. But really, that talks more to uh, process than to the removal of the email address. And so even though, again, for that reason, you have these 10 days, you absolutely ought to be removing that email address from your mailing list immediately. Now, what this clarified, this new rule clarified, was not what, how much time you had to do it, which stayed the same, but how onerous that removal request can be. And it can be not onerous at all. What the new requirement is that the act of opting out can must only take a single action. So, for example, when I click on my you know, in the little link in your email that says unsubscribe, it must take me immediately to the unsubscribe. Uh, we would argue to the you have successfully unsubscribed page. In other words, right. we would argue, we counsel senders, you can't even, you definitely should not be asking them for a password. That's just not okay. You definitely shouldn't put an intermediate page that says, are you sure you want to unsubscribe? Here, let us tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't. And arguably, it shouldn't even be a page that says, you're about to unsubscribe, do you want to confirm? You know, ideally, a single action means when I click unsubscribe in that email, I'm taken to a page that says you have successfully unsubscribed. Now, that page can say, if you didn't mean to, click here. But effectively, yeah, I love those ones where, you, where you, you, you have to log in to unsubscribe. And so then you've forgotten your username and password on that site. And then when you, go to, when you try 20 different things to get it to work, then you go to the section where you unsubscribe and you can't find that in the, in the user interface. That's, uh, that's great. Absolutely. So that's, um, or, or, or even better are the ones where you never even registered a password. They've just assigned one to you that right. they never told you about. So this is to deal with all of those. Okay, right. now, so those are pretty straightforward. 
However, this, this last one that I'm going to tell you about is the one that is just confounding. It is the most now, – now, I have written legislation, which I like to think is fairly straightforward. I always try and write in a way that, while legally tight, you know, non-lawyers can understand. And I will be the first to decry and have indeed done so legislation that is just impenetrable. But I have to tell you that this new quote-unquote clarification to CAN-SPAM is perhaps the most confusing, confounding, impenetrable piece of legislation I have ever seen. And so when end users and email senders look at it and run screening, it's quite understandable because it took me several read-throughs to really grok what it was saying. So here you go. And this, by the way, is up on our website. Um, we have a very straightforward CAN-SPAM compliance page, which really breaks this down. And perhaps the best way to explain it is to explain what it's trying to avoid. You know those cases where you get email from someone? Let's say you get email from suretymail.com. Okay, that's who sent it to you. And you look at the sender and you go, ah, suretymail is sending the email. And you open the email. And the only thing in that email is a big old advertisement for FedEx. Right? Maybe FedEx paid us a bunch of money to say, hey, you know, you guys ensure it positively gets there in the inbox and we positively sure, you know, it get get real packages there overnight so there's a synergy. A solo you mailing. It's called a solo mailing. All right. Now, you're an end user. Who do you unsubscribe with? I unsubscribe from the IPP list. Okay. So who do you think the average end user is going to try and unsubscribe with? Do you think they'll know? Do you think they'll look up at that header, or are they going to see FedEx? So the user wants to unsubscribe from the FedEx list. Mm-hmm. Did no, you see how there can be confusion there? So the, this new rule with CAN-SPAM is to help address the confusion that things like that cause. So here's the rule. If you send email that contains advertisements for entities other than yourself, so third-party advertisements, one or more, it doesn't matter, you must also include some sort of advertising text for yourself in that same email. See, if you do that... Wait, let me, well, wait, let me finish. Let me finish. This is, this is, this is a, a tripartite rule. If you do that, if you be sure to include that text for yourself in the body of the email, you become what is known as the designated sender. So this is called the designated sender rule. And you then are the designated sender for handling opt-out requests. If you fail to include in the text, the body of the email, something about yourself, then every advertiser who is advertised in that email is on the hook for handling opt-out requests. So why are they making it so complicated when, to, to you, you, let's say that I get the, the FedEx email from the ISIPP list and there's just an unsubscribe link at the bottom. I just unsubscribe, so I'm unsubscribed from your list. I never get your solo mailings again and so we're, we've, we've taken care of it. Why, why, are they, why are they complicating the issue in that way? 
That's a very good question, which I hope you will be able to ask someone else that you will interview that will be able to give you better insight there other than to say that this is usually, well, you know that old saw about you should never watch sausage or legislation being made? And you can imagine that as these things were coming down the pike, and I'm sure you know that there are always hearings at which email senders, email service providers, ISPs, et cetera, all get to provide input. And then hopefully the legislative committee takes into account all that input. And I can only imagine, and I honestly don't know because I was not at those hearings, that they heard so many different conflicting things that this is their best effort to protect both the end users and the senders, and the advertisers. Because, you know... Well, and I know you have one more, you have one more to, to explain to us, don't you? So maybe if you can do that, because then I have some more questions around just the legal side of this. Maybe if we can do that, just given our time constraints. Well, now, actually, actually the fourth one was just a, uh, sort of a reiteration as to who CanSpam applies to, and that's to any and all commercial bulk mail. Um, and what does that mean? That includes email for which a primary purpose is your, to feature or sell your own goods or services, even if you don't send that email yourself. And really that second one goes to the uh, the McCain Amendment, which is what the, the legislation, that's the part of CanSpam that I helped to author, um, which is a whole other area. But the fourth one really was, um, in fact, I was almost hoping that you wouldn't remember that I'd said four because it, it's really a non-issue. It just, it just confirms what was already in place. Okay. So the point is... Um, there's a there's a clear issue around, and we've talked about this in uh, several times. But no, I still, I, I just guess I'm not <laughs> not real happy with the, the conversations we have because I don't get an answer that I really understand. There's a there's a real problem with people being able to go to a site and sign up and be have the privacy policy in in tiny words say you know like an end user user agreement that says okay we now have permission to resell your email address to every single one of every single person we like and they'll be sending you emails from lots of different addresses and so therefore your you know your email address is now done for because we're going to send you so much spam it seems given the the third point that you highlighted in this law that they're, they're deliberately trying to enable this kind of stuff and all of these solo mailings and everything else that, that happens. Why, why is all of this sort of stuff being enabled instead of just stopped? I, I actually think that they're trying to, um, to, to not disable it, but they're trying to make it very onerous, right? And here's the reason. It, as, as an email sender, if you are FedEx and you come to me and say, I want you to do this solo mailing, I know the headache that's going to ensue if it really is a solo mailing. I'm going to say no. And actually, probably you're not going to ask me to do it now because if it really is a true solo mailing and I am not featured anywhere in the content, the headache is on you now. The burden's on you, right? Because now you're going to be on the hook for all those unsubscribe requests as well as me. So I really think that this was an attempt to to – put controls on something that really had become out of control, as you've pointed out, the potential there. Um, I, I think it might have been not the best effort that could have come out of, out of that. Uh, it might even be misguided, but I think that the intentions were pure. 
And I think really it was an effort to stop. To me, their intentions are are really poor because it seems to me they're enabling something that shouldn't be allowed. Why, why aren't they just making some sort of rule that says if you want to have someone signing up for an address, it, the, the from address that mails will come from has to be clearly and conspicuously displayed. If you ever choose to display that, you may change that from address once a year and then that, that's, then everything's very clear to everybody. Is there, I mean, is there more to it than that? It's, it's, it's already the law that your from address has to be clear. So I think perhaps I didn't explain something well, and maybe you're, you're thinking that this allows something that doesn't. It allows reselling of data. No. No, it shouldn't. I, I, I'm not no, following. That's, I mean, that's, there's a lot of – there's a big industry around this kind of thing where – I, I can let's say uh, I, I, everyone I, who joins up to my list to Adrian's Meet Innovators interview list gets gets the mm-hmm. interviews. I can have in my privacy policy that I also agree to. Um, you'll be you'll be getting um, emails and you'll get automatically added to Anne, Anne Mitchell's um, email deliverability list. And so everyone right. I get goes, automatically goes onto your list plus twenty right. other different companies. But the email that they'll get from Anne Mitchell's email deliverability list then will be from Anne Mitchell's email deliverability list. It won't be from Adrian by. Right, but I'm legally allowed to, to, to resell all of my data to you and see, to See, I, that's why I said I think you took this to a different place. What I just talked about, the new rule I just described, does not address that at all and has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Okay. In fact, quite the opposite, quite the opposite, this rule addresses when you take the list of people that you have and you don't sell it to me. Instead, you send them email advertising me. That's what that rule addresses. Yeah, fair enough. I guess it's, it's, to me it's tied because that's how they're used, but that's, you know, the, the data's then resold for these solo mailings. Um, but, yeah, take your point. Um, but okay. I, but uh, let me just say that, said, I absolutely agree with you 100%. And, um, you know, we very strongly discourage and indeed will not accredit someone who has slippery privacy policies like that. And, and I would, in fact... Um, you know, the problem with those privacy policies, and they have so much fine print, as you've pointed out. Can I, can I take just one second? I'm sorry, 10 seconds, less than 10. Can I read you our privacy policy? It's that short. The ISIP surety mail privacy policy is very simple, and I'm quoting now. We will not share your private information with anybody ever absent your permission or a court proceeding which compels us to produce such information, period. That's it. And you know what? That's what a privacy policy should look like. Right. So we're in complete yeah. agreement there. We are. It's just that the, the FTC and, the, and the, the government isn't, and they're keeping uh, and they're enabling a lot of this stuff. I mean, CanSpam came out a long time ago, and it's, it's, it's still there. So I, I don't get it. It seems like these guys are just on a different planet. Well, as well you know, Adrian, uh, you know, the U.S., our, our email policies are all opt-out, and, uh, you know, the EU and, and, and England, Britain in particular, have much more strident email policies that require, first of all, opt-in, um, and secondly, that, I mean, the penalty, their privacy policies, just that their, their national privacy policies um, are so much tighter, and there is, you know, there's a huge penalty to be exacted if you reveal uh, someone's private data without their permission. Um, okay. <laughs> um, the other thing, then, I wanted to ask you um, about 
is just in, in, in general, um, and this is just back on then onto ISIPP, if I didn't want to use ISIPP and just wanted to do things like, dem- if I just wanted to do domain keys and I wanted to do um, SPF, is that, if I have my content right, domain keys and SPF, is that going to get most of my mail through or do I still need to have some sort of certification? Um, that's a good question. And there's not a, a straightforward, well, there is a straightforward answer for that and that is it depends. Um, and, and that's because every, every ISP is different, every spam filter is different, and every mailing footprint is different. So the answer is absolutely yes, that could be all you need. It really depends on what you're sending out. Even if your content is completely right, it depends on your profile, how much you're sending out to how many people, the frequency, etc. Um, and it depends on who you send to. You know, for example, some of our senders, their mailing lists are almost entirely Yahoo or AOL addresses, for example. And so in that case, what they need to focus on is very different than if their mailing list were, were primarily, uh, you know, people at enterprise, you know, B2B, for example. Um, so it really depends, but it will certainly not hurt, and it could get you a large part of the way there. Um, and also, you can stop just, just for your own uh, – the. Uh, your own sake of your tiredness of your mouth. You can stop saying ISIPP. You can just say surety mail, which is the name of the service. <laughs> Isn't that easier? Okay. I've got, yeah, fair enough. Um, I've got a couple more quick questions. Um, sure. I've been asked with one mail service that I'm, I am, I'm going to be using. They've said that to use their mail service, I have to use a subdomain through them or a domain through them. So they want to send the mail from their own domain so that then it's checked. That the, what they offer me as an alternative is to register my own domain and have like a, or a subdomain, so it could be mail.mydomain.com, and that that mm-hmm. would be exclusively used by them. They said that this is the only way to get mail delivered now, and if if any service is mailing under your name, then their deliverability is going to be significantly worse. Is that correct? Well, let me let me re repeat what I think you said. So you are talking to an email service provider, mm-hmm. right? And they are saying either, let's call them uh, maildelivery.com. They are saying either you need to have your mail go out under adrian.maildelivery.com or you can set up mail.adriansaddress.com and and that will be what they will use to send your mail out. Exactly. Whereas other services will happily go along and use my email address as I specify and it seems to work fine. Okay. What they are saying, first of all, the piece that's missing there is undoubtedly the reason they're saying that is because they want to assign you your own IP address. And to assign you your own IP address, they need to give you a unique domain that goes with that IP address. Right? Um, But they're they're sending my outbound mail from their domain. So it's either their domain or or my own. Right, right. But they're they're, they're almost certainly going to... They're almost certainly doing that by assigning you your own IP address. And they are absolutely right that that is the best way to ensure optimum deliverability. Is it the only way? No. But it is certainly um, a best way. Just as if you're sending your own email out, not through an email service provider, you will presumably be doing it through your own IP address. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, really it's critical that, that if at all possible, you send your email out through a dedicated IP address that only you are using. So this email service provider is actually 
telling you truthfully what the best practices are. Now, it may be that that is the only way they will do business, and that's certainly their choice, and it would be one we would applaud, actually, because, again, it really is best practices. But it's certainly not the only way, and, and absolutely you can go to other email service providers that will do it differently. Okay. The last question then that I wanted to ask you about is um, for sending an email. Let's say if um, you send, and this is maybe not a small question, but maybe you can give a somewhat of a, a summary. If, if you send an email from from your server to you know AOL, Hotmail, Yahoo, or, or Gmail, what are the what are the current checks you know about that an email goes through to get into the inbox? Well, the first thing that happens is that the the receiving server will make note of the IP address from which you're connecting. And it will do a series of checks on that IP address. The first thing it will do is look it up in all the different blacklists and see if you're listed there. Uh, the second thing it may or may not do is look you up in the various accreditation services, such as ours, to see if you're listed with us. Then, and now I'm sort of aggregating. This is a combination of all the different things different ISPs do. Then they will check to make sure that you have RDNS, which is reverse DNS setup, and that means taking your IP address and seeing what domain claims to be serviced or that IP address says it services. So it will check to make sure that your IP address resolves back to adrianby.com. Then it will look at the email, the headers of your email to see, okay, this IP address says it's adrianby.com, so who does the email say it's from? And it will check to make sure that the mail is coming from the domain adrianby.com. So because, of course, Spammers always spoof their email. So if, for example, your mail was claiming to be from adrianby.com, but the IP address actually resolved to um, example.com, the odds are good your email is going to either get bounced or blocked or go into the junk folder because now you're sending email claiming to be one place, but really the IP address is another. Okay, you with me so far? Yep. Okay, that's all before their server ever accepts your email into their mail server. Once it passes all those checks, then it goes into content filtering, um, and that can mean the actual words and phrases you're using. It can mean uh, domains. It checks to see if you have links to domains that might be on blacklists because maybe someone is sending a lot of spam advertising a particular Before domain. Before to that level, I know one of the things that, could, that used to be able to whitelist mail was if it was from a friend who was already in your address book, and that would bypass oh. a lot of those filters, and therefore tell a friend mail got through. Is that still the case, or is that not the case anymore? No, and, and actually that's content filtering at the user level, so that was not before it got accepted into the server. There would be no way for oh. that, that to be the case. Um, unless, now again, that depends on whether you're talking about mail that's hosted through an ISP or mail that's on your own mail server. Um, certainly you can put whatever rules you want in your own mail server, but... I do not know of any ISPs that actually take their users' address books for whitelisting and put that out in front of the mail server. I mean, that just wouldn't even. Not only okay, wouldn't that what be. What you makes sense. So that's called content. Fair enough. I didn't. I didn't realize that. I, I'm just including that as part of content. In other words, right. you know, the whole headers and body of the email. Now, content typically has meant in the past. Does it have the word Viagra in it? Uh, but, you know, or, or whatever. But in this content, context, I'm talking about everything from the headers down to the bottom of the email. You know, it's all text of one form or another, right? And it's all, and, and the, the spam filters are all looking at what's in that text. Um, 
So again, you know, it can it certainly it can when it gets to the point. Well, let's get to that part in a minute. But so it's looking at URLs that are in the text of the email, domains that are being advertised in the text of the email. It's looking at the from address. It's looking at even the to address. It's looking at the subject line, and it's looking at the you know the overall content at the body. It's looking at the HTML to text ratio. It's looking at the image to text ratio. It's looking at the size of the font in the HTML. Um, and it's looking at all the words in the body of the email. All of those things are being analyzed by probably at this point all of the ISPs in one way or another. And all of those things can determine whether you get delivered now to the inbox or to the junk folder. Once you've already been accepted into the mail server, your mail's usually going to go to one of those two places, either to the inbox or to the junk folder. Um, now that's where your, your whitelisting based on the from address comes into play. Does it go to the inbox because you've whitelisted that address or does it go to your junk folder? Now the other thing that some of the ISPs and spam filters, um, particularly ISPs are looking at now is your open rates and your click-through rates. So if you send 500,000 emails, you know, a run of 500,000 emails to many, many people. And if not many of them are getting open, then you're going to start going to the junk folder because the ISP is going to say, well, if our users don't... So they're putting, what, a pixel to track opens in, or I guess they can easily see whether the user's open. And then are they they, uh, cloaking the the click-through URL so they can see whether people click on stuff? Um, I can't comment on that, and I do not know of any ISPs that are are openly doing that. Uh, but I do know that there is the ability to track uh, a click-through. Now, again, I, I have to caution to say that when it comes to open rates and click-throughs, we're talking about webmail. We're talking about places where you go to the, their site to look at your email, because that's really the only way they could track it. They certainly can't track it once it's been downloaded from their server onto your computer. But that's one of the reasons that we caution our, you know, we work very closely with our accredited senders on these things to make sure that they understand the ramifications. You know, it used to be you just didn't really care about open rates except that, you know, it was something you could advertise to your customers, come with us because we have great open rates. Um, But now you really need to care about those because they can affect your deliverability. And so really all this really means is you need to care that what you're sending isn't junk. You need to make sure that what you're sending your users want and that it's compelling so that they actually want to look at it. And if it isn't, then you shouldn't be sending it anyway. Um, if if uh, when you talked about um, the, the first round of checks and you're in the, the accreditation part, does that, do you then, if, a, if an email is accredited, will that then um, bypass a lot of the content checks or does it still go through the same rigmarole? It really depends on the spam filter or the ISP to what extent they do dispense with all the other checks. In some cases, it doesn't go through any of the other checks. As soon as they see that your IP address is listed with us, it goes right to the inbox. In other cases, it's given weight so that they see that you're listed with us and then they look at all the other things. And that's because some ISPs, and certainly I don't blame them for this, or spam filters will say, well, you know, but what happens if a spammer puts one over on surety mail or over on return path? What happens if that happens? Now, 
the ISPs all know us and know that if that were ever to happen, we would immediately, you know, summarily execute the spammer, by which I mean we would terminate their their services. But that doesn't mean that that wouldn't have already come through. And so some ISPs are very ultra-careful and say, you know, we really trust Sure Mail, but we're still just going to check to make sure that the content doesn't look too spammy. If it does, then we're going to look a little more closely at it and see. And, and you know, the odds are good that because of the weight they give us, that it will still go to the inbox. But that's why I say it really depends on the ISP or spam filter. They all do it differently. At the end of the day, it still means that you're going to go to the inbox or because, of course, no one can guarantee that 100% of your email will always go to the inbox because the ISPs and spam filters change their algorithms daily, sometimes hourly. Um, So what it means is either if you're accredited with us, your email will go to the inbox or if for some reason it doesn't, we're going to go to bat for you to rectify that and make sure it does then go into the inbox. How about um, if someone wants to sign up with your service, how, how, how might they do that? Uh, how much does it cost? In fact, we have many free resources at the site as well. So you can go to suretymail.com, and that's S-U-R-E-T-Y-M-A-I-L, suretymail.com. Um, although you so kindly said ISIPP so many times that that may be ingrained in their head, and, and they can also go to isipp.com, and all roads lead to Rome there. And, again, there we have many free things, very free resources there for you, whether you sign up with us for accreditation or not, but you can certainly sign up there for email accreditation. And um, the cost will depend on your business model. We actually have a unique pricing structure because we want to make sure that everyone could afford this. And so rather than basing the pricing on volume, for example, which, which other places may do, um, it really depends on what your business model is, and that way it's affordable for everybody. Okay, and um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. It's always a pleasure, Adrian.